Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. This episode isn't our follow-up on the Bobbio episode. We do have that upcoming, but this is a little bit different. Um, this episode is an interview with me and my friend Misha talking a little bit about identity, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the uh, current events that have been happening both in the U.S. and uh, internationally as well, and some of Misha's perspectives on it. Um, Misha is someone I knew in college, and I have some contact with now, just over social media and stuff, and she's had a pretty interesting perspective on some of these things, and I invited her to come on and talk, uh, especially because I think it's good to use this platform to make sure we're not just talking about big, high-end theory stuff and being a book club, but just having an opportunity to talk a little bit about the perspectives of just what's been happening in the contemporary situation. So I hope you enjoy this discussion. I think that it goes in a lot of interesting directions and a lot of interesting stuff is brought up. So, and as I mentioned before, if you're still curious about uh, learning a bit more about Umberto Bobbio from our last discussion, we do have another guest scheduled that I'm going to actually be interviewing today. So that should be coming out pretty soon to you as well. So you can still look forward to that. Anyway, you are currently listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails, but in a second you'll be hearing Misha and I have a discussion on America, East Asia, identity, Black Lives Matter, and a whole lot more. Misha works in a holistic approach to environmental science. They have lived and worked in the United States, China, and Japan. Uh, they are polylingual, and they have recently written a piece for Queer Appalachia, and they are our guest for the podcast today. And I should probably note that we also crossed paths a bit in college, though we weren't, like, hanging out all that much except for our really weird class that we were in. But thank you for coming on today. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> um, This is... It is a bit weird because we, like, had two long conversations, one which was supposed to be the recording date, but technical difficulties... Um, and I know when I reached out to you, I was, I told you like, this is kind of a different guest than like our show normally does. Cause, um, I was more interested in reaching out to you cause you were, uh, posting stuff kind of more about the, just the current events going on in the world right now. And you had a, a perspective I thought was pretty interesting um, because you've talked about coming from West Virginia, you know, we went, we both went to fancy schmancy liberal arts college in New York and you've worked and lived in China and, um, are in Japan. You, I think you, you were going to grad school, right? But they kind of shut down. 
Um, yeah, I was going to, I applied to um, a year-long language course at KO, and I was intending on taking undergraduate and graduate courses that focused on minorities in Tokyo and Japan um, and also on the KO campus. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like grad school, but it would have included okay. graduate and undergraduate courses. But in general, like you, you had a kind of interesting perspective on just how both in the U.S. where there's um, not all, not all the activity going on um, regarding police violence and black lives and violence against black lives and bodies is not all of that is strictly concentrated in the U.S. But I, I mean, I don't know the demographics exactly i would suspect that's where most of the activity is happening um and you've because of your experience and the things you're talking about i thought you had a pretty interesting kind of take on both how there's a wider diversity of what being black in the u.s can kind of mean than some people might imagine um, as well as having an international perspective, at least international for um, both the American, the the North American and the East Asian um, uh, perspectives and just kind of how there's uh, the overlap of kind of an area that is not defined primarily by kind of... Uh, a, a white population as such, but it still has, you know, very strong tensions with regard to racial matters, including the way that um, blackness is perceived and treated um, in in those those areas. So yeah, that's why I invited you to kind of come on and and, and talk a little bit. Again, thanks for thank you for on kind of just short random notice being willing to come on and um and in our previous conversations we also talked about just tons of other things too so don't be afraid to jump around if we want to talk about anything else that comes up that you you you're interested in or think is applicable yeah um and i do think i am one to kind of like very quickly transition between topics which can which can be disorienting for some so i'll try to keep that in mind for the sake of you know the audience um but yeah um so um I've actually distanced myself a lot from media in general like both social and news and um anything that's been discussing I guess kind of like the global front of anti-blackness um so I, I I think I've kind of um kind of lost focus since then and trying just to <laughs> reground myself as a person. I found an undergrad actually to um, one of the reasons I struggled so much while um, in undergrad was just, I, I, I feel like I'm very emotionally affected by every like, every like mass attention to like anti-black violence um, you know, um, and so it's it's just it's really hard uh, to balance between having to be 
a black individual um, who has academic and career interests that aren't so ostensibly tied to blackness, such as environment, technology, um, and math, and then also being having that be your existence that you are placed in and having to reconcile with the fact that when you're in a position of privilege, of having education, having a global, having access to like the, just the global world um, and having to be a representative of blackness um, around the globe, that you also have to do a lot of educating. And um, being black, not just being black, of course, it's such a diverse experience. I mean, most things are not singular, but I find that the black experience is often portrayed in a singular way as the object of charity or, you know, as the, the mass struggle, as the, as the, you know, the, the victimized by violence, that when you kind of are more than that, it's people meet that with a lot of confusion. Sometimes, um, sometimes its own form of aggression as well. You know, the kind of like <laughs> neoliberal Yankee-ish, you know, desire to project those standards. If you know what I mean, very much like how things were back in school. Um, so it, it, it's kind of like when these things come up, it, it's an opportunity to push push for a better representation of the black experience, but it's also a heavy burden. Um, you know, my optimal would be studying dirt <laughs> and trees all day. That That's my optimal. Um, so yeah, in case every, you know, people aren't aware of my background, I am a, a West Virginian, Appalachian, um, a panhandler, as they say in West Virginia, um, which I take my own issues with, but we'll get to that maybe sometime. Um, I grew up, my, my experience, I guess, is um, growing up in a predominantly white area that's also historically black um, and growing up removed from my blood-related family. Um, my, my family is, uh, I, I, I have taken the title of Melungeon. Some people debate whether or not that exists. Um, but I would say the, the tri-racial Native American um, sub-white and African-descended groups who came together and formed communities, that's, that's the origin of my family. And um, it definitely had an effect on our history in North America. Um, and so living in rural America is not necessarily so far removed from my family's history, um, which is important again, for other reasons we may get into. But yes, I grew up in the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia in Berkeley County. And um, I spent my time outdoors. It was like nothing, you know, that's just what's there. And uh, I was raised by all types of people, what you would call white trash. And I use that term endearingly. I heavily identify with that term, white trash. Um, you know, what you would consider more urban black groups and um, a lot of like Eastern Europeans too and Eastern European Appalachians. Um, and so my, my upbringing in Appalachia was really diverse, um, which some say is rare, but you know, I, my, that's not my experience. So, um, 
so yeah, so um, I guess the two main points that, that we, the two main topics we wanted to talk about as um, global blackness and blackness in Asia, um, and then the black experience in in Appalachia and kind of, uh, the, I guess I could offer a bit of a, I guess a, I could offer some sort of diversity to the understanding of blackness within the context of the states. Um, so I don't know which one you wanted to get into first, which which one of my uh, critiques or stories spoke to you most. Um, well, maybe we can start talking a little bit more about the the U.S. just because you were talking about your your background already. Um, so that oh, okay. might be a good um, a good place to jump off because um, I know. West Virginia is certainly a very has a very weird kind of I would call it guess, like romanticism on kind of both poles of a certain kind of American like mentality like there's a certain concept of it's like oh everyone there is just constantly racked with poverty and it's just the Mm -hmm. the you know the place that's always getting hit hardest and then at the same time it's also like and everyone there is it's it's a bunch of you know suffering well it's it's a bunch of hillbilly white hicks who are super racist trump voters and <laughs> they and then there's like a you know a bunch of this and that and the other minority groups and they should all be pitied because they live with, you know, Trump voter Hicks. Like, I, I feel like those are kind of, and then, and then, then the third one is like, it's, you know, got this long kind of coal mining history. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so the area of West Virginia, I grew up in again, the Eastern panhandle. I grew up in, um, I grew up in a Valley, the apple Valley, um, you know, kind of the, between or nearby the Shenandoah and Potomac rivers. So, you know, if you think of Harpers Ferry, John Brown's raid, you know, the intersection of, uh, the rivers between Maryland, Virginia and West Virginia, that that's my hometown. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm from Martinsburg, but they're, they're so close to each other. And I spent a lot of time in Harpers Ferry and Shepherdstown and all those places. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, a very hard thing to tackle. Um, so yeah, I recently wrote about the black experience. My, my black, I should say that my black experience in West Virginia, in the Eastern panhandle, um, as someone who identifies very much with hit culture. Um, um, unfortunately that term is very whitewashed. Um, <laughs> and you know, one of the reasons why I identify with white trash is because that culture has a lot of intersections with black cultures, which may not be so evident in particularly urban areas, but, you know, for the rest of us, it's, it's quite evident. And, and it goes beyond that too. I mean, you know, um, there's a decent, not a decent, but for me, a decent, um, Asian population in, in my area. And of course you have, you know, as you have with all of the races, you have, um, you know, upper middle class 
suburban types who have distanced themselves from any kind of resemblance to uh, poverty culture. So whether or not you want to call that white trash or the immigrant you know, culture or the black culture, um, you have that group. But then you also have a group of working class everything. And it, the tendency is to identify with what you what is assumed to be white trash uh, or uh, hick hillbilly culture. Um, I personally, um, I personally feel like, right, um, going into the protest, let's, let's start with the protest, because that was kind of the thing that pushed me to start talking, um, seeing all of these identity groups saying, you know, X or Y identity for, uh, black lives. And I think that, um, the two that got me a lot were, um, Hicks, Hillbillies, Rednecks for Black Lives, and the other one was um, Yellow Power, no, Yellow Peril, Yellow Peril um, for Black Lives, and we'll get to that later. Um, but yes, the, the Hicks and Hillbillies and Rednecks for Black Lives um, is something that um, Queer Appalachia itself had promoted, um, and many others felt justified in promoting. And while I understand the sentiment, I do, um, the, the message for Black Appalachians, Black rural people, even Black people in uh, cities, small cities in, you know, southern Appalachian areas, the, the message is you don't have access to this identity and to any aspect or any aesthetic or any culture that derives from that title and that identity. Um, you know, I grew up between so many cultures. I went to the Boys and Girls Club, which at the time was predominantly black, um, in Martinsburg, in the city of Martinsburg. Um, you know, I was also in the hills, uh, out in Hedgesville, um, with what would be considered, you know, kind of like the redneck, white trash, you know, uh, clucking, also twerking. People don't know this, but white trash knows how to throw down. You know, <laughs> tell, me, tell me about white trash that doesn't know Missy Elliott, that doesn't play Missy Elliott up there. At their weddings, it doesn't happen, um, and, it, and it was a completely different. It wasn't. It wasn't much of a different dynamic, but it was a different experience. And it all exists and exists right next to each other, um, and it and it crosses over. It it does. There are spaces in which it doesn't cross over. Um, you know, in high school, there was a white power table. Um, the white power table was a group of. Boys from the, you know, good old boys from the hills uh, ride the trucks. Um, their horns blasted the, the Dixie March, part of the, of the Dixie March. Um, and, you know, they would get up on the lunch tables and just start hopping around and yelling, you know, white power, white power, all over, like, oh, just the whole time. And, you know, they would never get in trouble for that. No one ever got in trouble for that. The only time anyone got in trouble was when one black student decided to stand up to them. And, um, you know, he was quickly, you know, he was quickly stopped for that. Um, so I'm not at all saying that we don't have an issue with anti-blackness, anti-black aggression or violence in my hometown or in West Virginia or Appalachia or uh, the South. I'm saying that there's more to it than that. Um, I grew up with, 
you know, many fathers, <laughs> one of whom was a black man from D.C., one of whom was uh, down from, like, central Cole County, West Virginia, and another was a Frenchman um, from France. Um, I grew up with Croatian and Bosnian aunties. Um, my grandmother, my adopted grandmother, was a Polish Appalachian from Pennsylvania. Um, I mean, we all mix. My, you know, the whole, the whole thing about like Trump supporters being anti-black. You know, my mom came to West Virginia, um, practically homeless, with two children, and it was a Trump-supporting farmer <laughs> who made sure we always had food always had shelter and even had Christmas, like actually got to celebrate a real full Christmas, you know, didn't even have to think about the fact that we didn't have, you know. So when people talk about these kinds of identity politics, you know, it just, it's, it's, not, it's not that simple. It is a multiplicity. You can have very racist, um, anti-Black, xenophobic, queerphobic, uh, Politically, I should say, individuals who are family to the day that they die, mm -hmm. who support you no matter what. Um, and you can have, you know, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, et cetera, um, people who are violent and um, explicitly act on their biases. Um, I would say that you know, the, the, art, the, the, the discussion shouldn't center whether or not either of these things exist. They both exist. They do. The issue that I come across is in how we frame these identities as singular things. And particularly in the North and in, you know, in California and the West, um, how we frame it as this group of people who is a singular white, you know, oppressor versus you know, us good liberals with lots of money who never do anything substantial. Hmm. Um, you know, um, so yeah, um, that's, that, that's my personal experience um, and kind of like my personal beliefs with that. Before maybe we kind of like um, back out, widen the picture a little bit more. Um, one thing that we talked about that I thought was interesting and I think might be an interesting way to kind of talk about how, like, because, you know, like identity politics gets thrown around sometimes as on the one hand, it can like on the one hand, it can be like you were saying, like a very even when it's like attempting to be this like we're widening the, the horizon, it can be itself kind of like a reductive framework. Um, but sometimes it's also like sometimes when people use that as a dismissive, it's also like it's targeting something else that's like beyond that kind of problem. Um, and we talked a bit about what, like one, one of the identities that we kind of talked about that I thought was interesting with this kind of, um, kind of the way that certain, um, certain ways of being told about like you're, you're in a group that has a lot of suffering or a lot of, um, hardship can kind of harden into like its own like badge of pride in a way that doesn't advance, you know, attempts to overcome 
those representations or problems that can kind of become like its own thing was we you were talking we talked a bit about how you know the famous kind of even though it's i'm sure regional and more to specific parts of virginia the the way that like the idea of the how the coal mine identity was you know it has this long history of like you know coal miners would struggle and against the company and you know the the 16 tons kind of story um and how that itself has kind of its own sort of like well now i'm i'm proud to be i mean not that someone shouldn't be happy to have like shouldn't be proud to say that they've struggled but that that sort of even the the coal mine industry itself kind of takes that um yeah yeah and you you see that with um you see that with how in how uh like education in coal mining regions is framed because in the panhandle we don't necessarily have that kind of pride we don't have that it's not in instituted in the education system. Um, but you do have issues with like friends of coal and, you know, how Trump and even Obama had talked about, you know, the coal regions. I mean, I know like the Obama era was more about divestments, but there was also kind of like a, a perpetuation of the coal identity. And I can't, I can't speak for those people. Even if I do have coal family, I can't talk for, uh, people who have lineages in um, that area. But um, I do know, um, you know, the history of, you know, very, you know, coming from, you know, Blair Mountain era, like very overt uh, oppositions of the coal mining to kind of just to the, sorry, to the, to the companies, um, to this like kind of, I guess, culture around culture and pride around um that struggle to <laughs> like resilience i'll say and and i want to say it is a resilient culture any culture that comes out of struggle is resilient um of course but you know post blair and then you know post i want to say 50s 60s um there's also a resurgence of uh, not as violent, but um, very overt opposition to the companies, um, and with the institu the the inst oh my gosh institutionalization. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> of friends of coal, you do have very large divisions because what they base what basically happened is, of course, the coal industry is in general fossil fuels are losing profitability based off of how much, how many deposits there are. It's becoming more expensive to extract less because of pressure um, changes. And you know, entire towns, even in my hometown, like, you know, entire towns are losing their economies, their local economies. And so as the economy gets smaller, you know, um, the, it, it, if, as the economy becomes smaller in that sense, um, and there isn't any sort of viable alternative, you know, people tend to divide. Um, and it has gotten violent. Those divisions have gotten violent between local people in the town who have said, no, coal is not good. Um, 
for us, for our economy, for, you know, our humanity, and then individuals who side with coal because that's what they know. Um, it is kind of um, indicative of a, of a kind of general problem, too, I think, in a way, in terms of how I think like that's historically like on a very wide scale too. like one of the great contradictions in that sort of attempts to organize against shops or companies and things is like, I mean, it may, it's probably less true today if you're like organizing in Amazon or Walmart, but like with those, those kind of industrial era ones that were so embedded you know, if you were, if you were a Detroit, you know, uh, car factory worker or something like the, the simultaneous thing that is like, we're not going to be treated like this. We, we want to escape this certain kind of brutal work, but you also have on the other hand, this, well, but I also have to take pride in what I do and I have to, right, yeah. um, I have to announce that I am this kind of worker and of course there's the constant problem of no matter how bad the industry is that keeps your little town or district or whatever going like you know i have a i have friends who who kind of joke like you know what's the one worse thing than being someone who works in capitalism it's being someone who can't work like <laughs> as horrible as your job is like if that thing goes you kind of know, like, you're kinda, like, if that deindustrialization happens, you can still be kind of even more screwed just in the long run because there's just not going to be anything there to maintain yeah. the people. Um, I, I was going to say, there have been efforts in West Virginia to, for instance, uh, shift focus to, you know, kind of like IT. Um, I can't remember the name of the organization that uh, made a large attempt um, but it was particularly done through CompSci, and it it didn't result, even with the increase of education in these areas, it didn't necessarily provide more opportunity to them. And so the alternatives, you know, you, it's, it's kind of, the issue is multifold, but the ones that stand out to me predominantly are culture does evolve around the history of a place. Um, culture for in in my town, it's you know you have the fertile valley and the orchards and the rivers. Um, you know we don't have a lot of issues with we don't have that same kind of issue in the Smokies um, with the economy being based around one particular thing, um, which is fossil fuels um, and the struggle for rights within that that so it, it does kind of create a culture and an attachment both to the land and to that history i mean like entire families built or i guess grown up through you know that industry um and then also you know even within even in the eastern panel i must say like i knew when i was young that i had to leave um, I didn't want to stay in state. I wanted to 
you know, see the world, wanderlust kind of thing, you know, back <laughs> when I was young. Um, that's, of course, changed, but it just felt like the kind of jobs and the kind of opportunities that were available in-state didn't necessarily, they didn't seem like enough to me. Um, I knew plenty of college-educated individuals who were still struggling economically. That same image was not painted for, for instance, like the Ivies and leaving the state sounded like, um, you know, an opportunity to progress myself. Um, of course, that is like a very like capitalist sense of mm-hmm. like increasing capital and going from like an educated lower class to something a bit more economically sustainable. Um, a large sum of my friends who are college educated still ended up in the military Um, A large sum of my friends who did get into college could not finish college for um, external reasons. And so um, the kind of alternatives, even outside of the Smokies, within poor regions of Appalachian, the South, aren't necessarily sustainable for people in the lower class. so, yeah. Might be an opportunity to kind of like broaden the picture a bit and we can either bring in kind of what, because you already talked about the, um, the, you know, kind of Hicks for Black Lives Matter kind of thing. You mentioned the, you know, the yellow power for Black Lives Matter. Um, um, or we could alternatively, maybe before we widen out to, kind of the fully international, if you wanted to talk about maybe if you had anything you want to talk about in terms of being in kind of New York or the more classically cosmopolitan urban, you know, thing. Um, Though I I was also going to say it's interesting you brought up that they tried to bring in like an IT, like, I don't know, that that, that just seems like very indicative of like, like the socio like like just like the mentality of just like we'll fix it by dropping a computer thing like, <laughs> yeah. like that's what's gonna like bring it all up like i don't know like i feel like that's like that always like is the go-to and it just never like really works but yeah because it's like education does a lot but when there's a lot of education available if you're working in a class-based system it doesn't necessarily do anything. I mean, if you, you know, people can have skills and not be hireable because they don't have connections or they don't have a title or they didn't go to this specific school. It's like, yeah, it, it it's quite a shame. Everyone talks about how there's all these jobs in tech and stuff, but like that partially that's to make that market so saturated with cheap people who can do mostly like repetitive entry Mm -hmm. low end stuff that's not going to that's in and of itself very time consuming and kind of you know like it's portrayed as very glamorous but i've not met many people that work in tech that aren't you know like unless it's someone who maybe is like i work on my own and develop very nice looking websites for clients or something like most of the people that do it are like i spend 
12 hours a day putting numbers into a, you know, thing and I get back pain and can't sleep very well. Like it's not, you know, like, like it's, it's in and of itself. It's like still trying to kind of just not produce a real like desirable future for anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the key there is saturation, um, in that when a skill or a knowledge becomes so accessible that you can increase the pool of, you know, workers or prospective workers and then decrease, you know, their value and the way that you treat them. And then the competition is so high. It's like, what is the alternative? You don't really have one. I mean, and even like we both went to, again, like a pretty like fancy recognizable liberal arts college, but like, you know, even that market is like, I, yeah, like I know people that went on to be like, I'm in the film industry or whatever, but like most people still went into like unpaid internships or I know people that yeah. go to temp agencies and just like drove around the country doing like, uh, kind of menial, like drive around and fix stuff work. And like, like, like even that, like market that's all built around signaling your like elite education it's so competitive because everyone's told to go like like that's become the idea of being successful and people are driven to go and try and which of course then saddles you with massive amounts of debt yeah yeah and i mean i wouldn't have gone to the school i went to if it weren't for the full scholarship mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with in-state schools. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, the kind of education you get, you know, for instance, at WVU is a phenomenal school. Um, but it's just like the title, what, what is marketed is that the title matters. And even that, you know, except for abroad out here in East Asia, I'll say, um, within America, I would say, that's not, it's not really the truth. Um, it, it definitely, it's something, but it's, it's not the big chunk, you know, um, it's not going to make the difference. And that, that's, that's what, that's, that's the popular thing to say, you know, that like, oh, you go to an Ivy or an elite institution, like you're going to get a job. You're, and it's just like, but look at all of these people who didn't. And, <laughs> And, and then even if you do get a job, is it, is, it, is it going to be one that is humane in all aspects? And that's another layer. I mean, I record a podcast from my parents' basement. So that is, <laughs> that is the success story. That <laughs> Put that on a poster. Yeah, like, <laughs> advertise that to students. Yeah. Um, which, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's not the the cure-all um most certainly um but uh yeah do you do you have anything you'd like to talk about in terms of um your experience working in china and japan and kind of that broader i mean it's still a, a fairly regional um mm -hmm kind of cultural outlook, but, um, still, still international, um, connecting it to the U S um, especially cause we talked a bit also about like, you mentioned how 
Um, Because, I mean, you speak Chinese and Japanese. Yeah, I'm literate in Japanese. Like, I can read news and instructions, but my speaking is awful, so... I would say literate. <laughs> uh-huh. But you were, you kind of said, you know, like, even though there's, those are both countries that do have a, um, you know, they do have a fair amount of, like, American or European people that will live there or, uh, mm-hmm. or stay there. Um, but a lot of them don't actually speak the native language or, while they're there. Yeah. So there's, there's a kind of tendency in general for this sort of at least American kind of like this is what it's like over there but um I mean I'm sure with like some of the like journalists and stuff I'm sure some of them are more you know people who you know a little bit more but like there's still kind of a saturation yeah I mean I would challenge the idea that journalists would know more (laughs) because when corona when the coronavirus broke out it was like I, what was it, a New York Times reporter um, went to Wuhan, straight to Wuhan. Um, it was, like, pretty big on Twitter. And he was like, look at all these people wearing masks. And it's like, well, it's winter and and there's pollution. And that that's literally what people do. Like, in, in Asia, in East Asia, you wear masks. Well, in China, you wear masks for two reasons, either pollution or because you're sick. Um that, that's always been a thing, you know, all those pictures you see of just, like, floods of people walking wearing masks, that's so, so, so normal in particularly northern China um, and, like, central China, any industrial region, any major city, you're going to see people just wearing masks. It's just completely absurd to twist it for the sake of a of shock factor. Um, so, yeah, I question that. Yeah, I mean, with <laughs> like China, that, um, America is so particularly biased about, I, I just meant more, I think they're, I, I guess, yeah, journalist isn't a good one. I mean, more like, mm-hmm. I, I think there are some people who do like academic work on China who I would be like, okay, yeah. you probably can speak some Chinese or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, and I would definitely say like the academic, you know, community, of expats and expats in China, by the way, because my British friends get confused when I say this, but expat in China refers to anyone who's not Chinese and is from abroad. Um, it's used interchangeably, but in, in England and in the UK, it, it's used to say an expatriate and American. Um, so in China, um, oh, I forgot the point I was going to make. Oh yes. Yeah, so the academics, um, you know, that, that's that's a bit different. You tend to be working, I think, in a more integrated environment with Chinese and with international people. Um, but it, it's a completely different experience in the in working culture um, and then between tier one cities. So that's like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and then like semi-rural or like tier three cities and below. Um, so um, yeah, because the discussion I think we had was on um, expats or international um, people in China who tend to have a negative bias of the country. And I'm not talking about the CCP when I when I talk about you know 
China in general. The, the CCP is something completely different. Um, or it's not, but for me it is. We we did talk about uh, tankies too, which was a bit fun, but we don't have to go into that. Um, right <laughs> yeah, um, the, the tanky elites. <laughs> but um, yeah, when it comes to living in China, you know, I'm uh, so... My my um, identity, I tend to refer, my racial identity, I will say, um, is like an Afro-Arab Melungeon. Um, so, you know, I, as like a person with textured hair, I often have to wrap it. Um, and so when I'm in China, my identity, I get identified and, and Chinese people tend to do this quite overtly because they don't think I understand them as um, either Black, Uyghur, or Indian. Um, depending on if my hair is down, up, or wrapped. <laughs> so um, it's really interesting being an American person who has a very standard American experience um, and who <laughs> is looked at by Chinese people and, and also by white people in China as, you know, other, as not Western, not American, um, either African or Middle Eastern. Um, and with, and so um, in these spaces, um, it, pr- it pretty much works. The, base, the basic stru- uh, like social structure in China is um, between foreigners and Chinese is Chinese people who can speak English and speak it well um, and foreigners who can't speak Chinese or speak a little bit of Chinese and think that they know how to speak Chinese. For instance, um, I know people who have lived in China near a decade or over a decade who can order food, um, barely. Um, and they've worked again, completely legally. Um, but they don't, and they live in the communities. They literally like live all over rural areas, villages, um, and in big cities, but they don't speak Chinese. Um, and they don't communicate well in the surrounding areas. Um, and so, you know, you, in, in these spaces, it's like, okay, like people are making judgments without having conversations with Chinese people um, to understand what is discrimination um, and what is just how Chinese people interact with, how, how various Chinese um, cultures, because it's of course not a monolith, I'm speaking generally, um, communicate um, from my experience of being relatively fluent in Chinese, communicating with people in Chinese, old people, young people, West, I don't, this is problematic, but like supposedly westernized Chinese people. Um, the idea that you get at first confrontation, which tends to be, ooh, weird foreigner, um, let me stare at you or ask you questions or sometimes touch you, um, kind of like changes a lot when you ask like why are you doing that and and normally you know the the staring and the the getting a little bit too close is not you know something to say like something to make you feel bad it's just it's how Chinese people tend to interact with their environment and communicate with their environment I know that sounds super weird to explain it this way but linguistically like that is what language is it's an interaction with the environment and so you know, I just feel like in expat spaces in which no one is really attempting to understand what is culture and what is othering you or 
what is othering or discrimination, everything is interpreted as discrimination. And the justification for that usually from foreigners is, well, I have a Chinese friend who, of course, speaks English completely. Um, and so, you know, I know what China is. Well, I've been here for so many years and I know what China is, but you can't really know China if you don't know Chinese. And I'm, I'm going to stress that you can't know China if you don't know Chinese, if you don't know what's just normal communication within a specific cultural context, you cannot understand that culture, point blank. And a lot of expats don't get that. And it doesn't matter where they're from either. You know, I know expats from Africa who would never, who have openly, you know, talked down about the Chinese community. And that, that's a complicated layer, of course. There's a lot of anti-blackness in China, and I won't negate that. I have experienced myself with police brutality in Beijing, um, awful city, by the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it's still a disconnect, regardless of if there's anti-blackness or xenophobia in China, which there is. Um, the complexity of that and the division between that and just what is normal communication with the environment um, has to be known in order to have a holistic picture of that, the cultures and the, the country. Um, so that is a huge thing in China. People, Chinese expats in China are not at all expected and do not assimilate or uh, at least acquire lingual cultural understandings of the communities that they interact with. There are definitely foreigners who do that, but the large sum that I have met, even the ones who studied Chinese and studied abroad in China, um, who later kind of lost the, the acquisition of the language um, and therefore don't interact bilingually, um, you know, even they kind of are in their own community. Um, and that is not at all my experience. I have Chinese family. I have been all over the country, including rural areas, and I speak bilingually, and I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> so, you know, I, a large sum of expats only have expat friends or communities. Um, and so that, that, that the Chinese, the, the foreign landscape in China is very much segregated, but it's almost like self-segregation because there's nothing stopping there's nothing, there's no laws that limit foreigners from interacting with Chinese communities. I mean, it's very, in, in, in the cultural communist sense, especially outside of major cities, China really does hold up to like communal things in that if there is a plot of land, you walk onto it and no one questions. I mean, people question you, but, you know, it's not like this is my property and like, you know, someone's, you know, loading a gun, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, I want to talk to you. And it's like, all right, let's talk. Um, Japan is a little bit different. <laughs> I, I definitely have my own qualms. I'll, I'll say about Tokyo. Um, it still is a thing, of course, where foreigners do kind of have their own um, communities. But you're, more, you're much more likely to find foreigners who um, attempt and successfully acquire Japanese as a second or third language and interact with and immerse in the culture through that language acquisition. Um, and especially that is so for um, foreigners who are not from an Anglo-lingual background, who aren't English background. 
Um, so, you know, a lot of my friends here are Italian and, um, you know, French. And yeah, yeah, there's a very large Italian community here and they're all bilingual or trilingual, actually, because, you know, they have all three languages. Some of them have, you know, more than that, four, uh, Korean usually. Um, but a lot of Europeans, non-English, native-speaking Europeans also have to acquire English while they're here. Um, or I should say non-native English-speaking foreigners because there are also a decent amount of Brazilians here. Um, and so they acquire two or sometimes three languages at the same time while they're moving here. Um, which is so funny to me because one of the biggest excuses I hear from like English speaking, like native English speaking people. So like Brits and especially Americans, it's like, oh, it's so hard to learn a language and also work and do these things. And it's like, but you have these groups of people who are learning multiple languages at once. And then you don't, you can't supposedly, you can't take the time to acquire a second language. Um, and I, I do challenge that because, you know, a lot of foreigners don't have to work a Japanese kind of job. I mean, if you don't speak Japanese, you don't work a Japanese job. It doesn't happen. You work for a foreign company until you can acquire Japanese and then you can integrate into a Japanese job. But here in Japan, it's not like China. Um, in Japan, you are required in most fields to be very proficient in Japanese. Um, and so if you want to integrate more into the society and leave more Western tailored types of jobs, then you must be proficient. Um, and so you have a larger sum of foreigners here who not only acquire the language, but also attempt to integrate more with the society. Um, and I say attempt because unlike China, <laughs> Japan, from my experience and from what I've heard is the job is, is it because it's such a conformist capitalist sort of, you know, society, you know, there's, there's a, there's even a, a phrase for this, which is like any nail that is, I, I can't translate it well, but it's like any nail that is left out will be hit back in. So it's basically saying that we will force you into conformity. And if you deviate from the norm, you, you will be forced into that or terribly excluded. Um, and so it's harder for foreigners here to kind of integrate simply because conformity is so appreciated here. Um, whereas in China, it's a lot easier for foreigners have a choice and they also aren't forced to assimilate. So they don't. And it's kind of like Chinese people trying to accommodate them. So they're kind of at opposite spectrum, those opposite ends of a spectrum here. Um, with cultural connection between foreigners and um, native people. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's like the gist of it um, in Japan and, and China. It is interesting that Japan is like, <clears throat> in a sense, the more conformative one, but it's also kind of like, it's almost because I, I, I don't know, this, this is like a very like from my armchair being like, uh, like making assumptions, the connection building in my brain palace. <laughs> um, but like, it, I, I, I kind of wonder about how like, because Japan did have such a, you know, the post-war like American 
intervention, industrial buildup, and like the the kind of post sixties, like it became this big, you know, power. And we and the U.S. of course still has a ton of connection with Japan. And um, if I remember correctly, they still don't have an army because of us, unless that changed recently. Right, they are demilitarized, definitely. And but like I kind of wonder if that's one of the reasons why it's maybe such a spot for so many kind of Westerners that like integrate with it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for Japan, it, I feel like Japan has been marketed to America and the West as this kind of like cool, fun place that you want to go and live and work. Like an entire industry has been created around targeting weeaboos and like Japanese enthusiasts, um, language schools, you know, not requiring anything above a high school diploma um, so that uneducated foreigners can throw their money at them for a language they're probably not going to use. Like these are very real um, industries here. And for foreigners who are coming here, not for weeby dreams, um, for foreigners who are actually coming here to work in a very particular industry or because they've had a relationship or something like that, the, the, the experience is very different. Um, outside of Shibuya and Shinjuku and Akihabara, um, you know, you're going to find, you know, a real life with real experience, uh, real struggles here. Um, and so I know, I know that in the economic boom in the eighties, um, you know, foreigners had an easier and better time, um, making really good wages here and having, um, you know, good living standards. Um, but recently, you know, (laughs) the economy is not necessarily the best here and that issue is not exempt to foreigners, um, the English teaching industry here is not as fruitful. Um, most foreigners are paid, you know, depending on which school you teach at, but, you know, a lot of foreigners are paid very meager, meager salaries. They're not over here living it up, buying houses or anything like that. They're, like, making ends meet, <laughs> um, just like any other working class individual here. Um, whereas in China, you can make a very decent living a lot. And so, you know, and... Thinking about that, the fact that Japan has been marketed and Japan was marketed post-war because, in part because it has been theorized of America's need to kind of like monitor the rest of East Asia. And Japan was kind of like, you can destroy someone and build them up and, and then you can market the culture so that people feel like you're friends and then you have a cohesive economy and political relationship and And then later, you know, with the increase of Japanese media, then it was like even easier to market and have this very good relationship between the two countries. And so, you know, but since now, you know, they're they're having a quote unquote issues with the amount of foreigners coming into the country. Now there are more pushbacks, laws being enacted to keep foreigners out, including um, you used to be able to switch visas as you're here. So you could go from a tourist visa to a student visa, a student visa to a working visa. Now you can't do that. Um, also, schools are rejecting international students. It's just a whole bunch of things. They, they really are pushing foreigners out now. Um, and so I, I guess I would, I would suppose that has a lot to do with 
of course, the decreasing value of the economy, the lack of stability in the economy, even though, you know, foreign investment plays a major role in that sustainability. But, well, you know, whatever. Fuck that, I guess. Oh, whoops, sorry. Uh, well, it's fine if you want to swear on here. Oh, OK. I didn't know your rules for that. Um, and then with this kind of increasing nationalist perspective, you know, it's kind of like the whole we're losing money. What do we do? Let's not critique the government. Let's not march for our rights petition. Let's let's say screw the foreigners. They're our problem. Oh, no, nationalism. Oh, it's getting a little fascisty over here. Let, you know, that it, that's what's kind of happening here. Um, so, you know, we'll see how America and Japan's relationship play out. Um, <laughs> based off of their new uh, attempts at pushing foreigners out, including Americans, and also the lack of decent pay here for everyone, including foreigners. Um, but yeah, China is kind of like, in image, it's like foreigners are bad, but there really aren't a lot of laws keeping foreigners out. In fact, I would argue um, that the government is kind of turning a blind eye to <laughs> any kind of, you know, loophole that foreigners find with working in China. I'm going to leave it at that. But, um, you know, China is kind of like the face is, you know, we're Chinese and we're so great, but then, you know, they let foreigners in, they let Americans in and they don't check, they don't care, you know, what we're doing. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the image of Japan is very different from what the image of Japan and China um, as the government and as countries is different than the internal workings of what's actually happening, like societally. Um, Has there really been a reaction in those areas, those countries that, that you, that you, in, at least in the areas that you were in or what you're seeing um, regarding what was happening and what it has been happening in the U S I was just gonna say, or was it kind of, just not really uh, in the media or discussion? Um, so I haven't been in China, so I can't really tell. I did have some friends um, or one friend reach out to me and say how disappointed she was um, in America's treatment of black people and minorities. Um, but in Japan, there was a very, very large march. In Tokyo, there was a very large march. I believe there was also one... In Kyoto, there there were a couple throughout, but the largest one happened in Tokyo. I was here for that. Um, it was a very intersectional experience um, in which, you know, it was a it was an intersection between the LGBT community and, you know, black supporters. I mean, supporters of BLM, and um, yeah, it was just you know a march from. Shibuya to Yoyogi Park, um, which they're right next to each other. And it was very organized. Um, the police were there, of course. I mean, um, the police kind of like separated groups. So as they were walking, not too many groups were in the same spot. Um, and, uh, you know, but there were like busloads of officers that were um, deployed. And so, I mean, there has been a lot of in very specific spheres, which is common for the city. Um, there was a lot of support for the BLM movement and protest against the treatment of black lives in America. 
Um, to that, I will say, again, identity politics are important. They are practically important um, because it is a tool created for the perpetuation of general oppression, of you know, economic oppression, um, and all of the divisions within. Um, however, the issue that struck me with the movement is that it seemed to end there. Um, it, Japan, and I'll say Tokyo, I need to say Tokyo because Tokyo is different from a lot of other cities. Tokyo it has no shortage of economic issues. In fact, I would say it, it is a, a pretty stark warning um, for how capitalism and complacency can lead to exploitation, right? And that is rooted, of course, arguably, right? There are many roots, but one of the major roots is through identity, and that can be racial, um, and that can be, you know, nationalist. Um, what I would have liked to see with those protests were demands, were a sort of targeting Japanese people and getting them to understand the relationship between global anti-blackness, anti-blackness in America, or anti-blackness in Japan or in Tokyo, and how these regular Japanese people in Tokyo are being exploited through nationalism and racism. Um, you know, <laughs> Japan kind of works like, you know, Japanese people in certain companies and certain jobs are so unbelievably overworked, um, even in supposedly niche um, fields such as marketing or IT. I don't know a single one of the Japanese person that I know. I don't have a single Japanese friend who hasn't had some kind of issue with how they've been labored by their company. Um, and that is large in part, I think, because of the level of convenience here. You have so many distractions. You have so many like conveniences. You have convenience stores, which literally feed you. I mean, you don't have to, why, why give someone time to take care of themselves when they don't need it? Cause you have convenience stores and you have stores that are open up really late. Why, why, why do that when we have, you know, cheap alcohol and you can go drain yourself with that in the streets of Shibuya on a Friday night by 8 PM, completely trashed. Um, there are so many conveniences here, you know, uh, things like pachinko and, um, which is like gambling and arcades are still pretty big here. Even like tape stores to buy like movies. Like there, there are just so many of them. Um, and I feel like it kind of justifies, you know, the overworking because you are overworked and, and you, you know, accumulate this capital for company, then you are also afforded clubs and conveniences that are luxury and a privilege. Um, and God forbid you have an issue with working 12 or 14 hour shifts um, because you could be this foreigner over here working in the convenience store um, or you could be a Korean, which, you know, boo that, um, who doesn't, who although has been here generationally for like multiple generations, doesn't have a Japanese passport or Japanese citizenship um, you know, you're Japanese and that's the greatest thing. And, <laughs> you know, don't complain. And so, you know, that's part of the reason why 
there there's there's so much stigma against like mental health and you know suicides here you know people would rather harm themselves than stand together and fight and i think it is the duty of the blm movement here to to discuss that because the question that a lot of japanese people have is how is blm relevant to us why do we have to deal with people yelling and disrupting traffic in the streets so that you know they can make a point about people who aren't here who by the way are here there are plenty of black people here um and the issue and and the reason that lies in the fact that in a globalized world in a, yeah in a globalized world no country is exempt from anti-blackness or from the ever interwoven social structures we create for oppression and capital um the fact that there are japanese companies in america that exploit black labor the fact that um a large part of the entertainment industry in japan relies off of black culture everything from hip hop um to to EDM to even girl groups have roots in black culture um every in soul funk jazz that's that's all really big here the fashion um you know the general i mean you can't you can't go anywhere without seeing graffiti here there's so much graffiti tokyo is a black city it's so black <laughs> and that's a big economy and but they don't see it and they don't see it because you know that's just not a part of the discussion and so although BLM was a big thing in Tokyo and it continues to develop here i'm not seeing enough of the connection between the economic utilization of blackness of anti-blackness and also of appropriation of black culture and as a means to create capital and simultaneously oppress all people starting with black people and with Koreans and with Ainu and with rural communities um yeah so it it was definitely a thing here but it just didn't it didn't go far enough um but you know that's completely that is that's you know it's a new thing and and it's it's very hard to work with that in this country because the history of pro, of protest here you know with the student revolution or the student protests um being a big example it's so stigmatized and anything having to do with disrupting that that the normalcy and the complacency you know um the kind of like shogunai like that's just how things are is a common phrase here you know it's not going to be well accepted and it's not going to be accepted um if it's coming from supposedly foreign voices um you know there are again you have of sizable korean community here you have plenty of hafu which means like half race or multi-raced people who aren't seen as japanese even though they are half or they were born here and they went to japanese schools um no one cares about what they have to say no one sees them as japanese um because of the conformity here and that racial conformity works really well with the economic conformity and all the other social conformities here so i don't have a solution for the anti-blackness or BLM movement or any kind of economic or class progress within this country because of that complacency and conformity um that is probably and i, I you know i've only been here for a year so if i'm wrong i'm wrong but 
I would say from my experience, and I've had very close experience with all of these issues, um, that conformity and complacency is the biggest hurdle um, for this country to overcome if it ever wants to move beyond these toxic structures. One thing that you brought up was um, the stuff about time, because even here, you you, de you definitely do hear about ja Japan having a very serious burnout culture kind of problem. But like, it's just kind of interesting because that was that that idea of how, you know, ostensibly all this stuff that's supposed to save you time just makes time your time so interruptible that you can be expected to work at any moment. Um, I uh, I don't want to self plug too much. I actually, but I, I wrote an essay about this in a magazine uh, about like when I because here. I was working as a custodian for a university and I was just struck by how um, I was reading about Italian workers in the seventies and they were, they would literally, one of them was like bragging and he was being like, yeah, we've got like this like radical union. So I finish my piecework in two hours and I spend the rest of the day like smoking and playing cards and like doing crossword puzzles. Cause like <laughs> they can't stop us. And I was thinking, like, you know, everyone at the place I worked, like, there was no idea of, like, you could just, like, hang out together. Like, well, I mean, people did, like, try and, like, sneak around and, like, hang out and talk together. But, like, mm -hmm. during the summertime, that was, like, usually pretty easy. You could usually get your work done. And, like, like there were some days where we worked 10-hour shifts and you could get it done in, like, four hours because it's the summer. So no one's in, like, certain buildings on on campus. And then, like, you just had, like six hours and like no one usually like went and like hung out like you would go and hide with your phone somewhere because your phone yeah. you can put it away immediately if someone comes to go check on you so like even when you're trying to spend this huge chunk of free time it has that sense of like interruptibility like your 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 things that you're supposed to be enjoying even when you're trying to like get off work or something have to be like immediate and like kind of compact and bite-sized in that way um and then and i think it's also interesting like so much of your description especially what you're saying about what like the the black lives matter movement you were you're hoping to kind of like push for it's so interesting that it, it sounds so much like what you know in the u.s radical tradition is sometimes like people talk about like um you know wages of whiteness like a psych the psychological wage of of being white or that kind of you know um i think noel ignatiev who wrote you know how the irish became white kind of like writes about you know you kind of need to recognize like there is not really like white culture like hegemonic white like like you can have your culture from the area you're in and there's like French culture and like, but that like, there isn't actually like white culture that you can be like, oh yeah, like that's, that's <laughs> mine. Like, like, you know, like that's where I came like, from. <laughs> Cause it's just all there to like give a certain block that oppressive power, even if there are people that are also, ex or, or, or if you're an exploited person who maybe doesn't have direct power, but can maybe get in a bit of excused violence to 
excused violence or or a certain sort of hey i can still get a better job or house kind of mm-hmm. division you know like you like there's actually a even like there's a richard Pryor bit like oh, he's on the news and he's just talking about this he's like yeah like that's why they're scared of like people going against racism it's not because they're scared of like more black people just being on tv or something like just because black people will be on tv it's like that is if you actually have white people going oh like i should actively betray whiteness in this sense like that's that is a part of a program that gives like a significant amount of solidarity and like you know um a body of expands a body of power against that um kind of system but it's uh, it's just interesting to me how that kind of language is very associated with certain um parts of the american black radical tradition but it's just interesting that it's you're kind of talking about it in a similar way in a country that i don't think in america we would think like of having that kind of um kind of relationship um and i think it's inter- I, I think it's yeah like solidarity and and that being invested you know is a hard thing to do like it's and and even i had a there's a couple people that i know online and who were on um, another podcast talking about the uh there was the the autonomous zone in seattle and what they were watching there one of them was local and so went several times one lived in the area outside of seattle but drove in and checked it out a couple times but like they're talking about yeah kind of a similar like kind of how it had like a block party vibe and it was like yeah we're like it's very like radical and like just the struggle between like people who are trying to organize in a more like liberal mindset and there were people who were trying to be more radical there are people that were just kind of there because it was just kind of where the bodies all got pushed to be and like people who were just kind of touristing it and one of my friends or what not like they're not like my close personal buddy but one of these people um was even talking about like how they felt it was kind of an issue. One of the issues was that how some of the kind of more liberal individuals there were kind of trying to push that, um, you know, we need to find all the white people in the zone and they'll make a wall. And whenever the police attack, the white people will go out and like bear the brunt of it kind of thing, which, and they were saying how like on the one hand, like you want, white people to have stakes and feel invested which means putting yourself on the line but that kind of thinking in and of itself even though it's attempting to try and get you like it it tells you that you're only trying to fight against your own self-interest rather than being rather than that you yourself have a self-interest in you know the exploitation and problems that are going on um i i feel like if that is done without any other sorts 
of dialogue or um, action that kind of adds that, that kind of adds that fact in that yes, as a white individual, you have the privilege of not being labeled as you know such and such of whichever identity in the in the case of blackness it's it's violent animalistic not feeling um um yeah it does kind of take away from the fact that there is a self-interest but i i don't i don't necessarily feel like that action in in the face of police brutality necessarily um necessarily would negate that fact negate the fact that white people are also have an interest in um kind of dissolving you know racism um i think again yeah if it if it's it it depends on how it's done it depends on the context um you know I, i don't necessarily know the context of that particular thing i did know that like shielding black bodies at protests was a big thing simply because like you know black bodies are easy targets but I would, of course, and without doubt, challenge the idea that only black people need to be protected. It's it's a complicated thing because the, the stats are that black bodies are disproportionately, like very, very disproportionately aggressed and killed by police. But then on the other side, like there is also a large sum of white individuals who are aggressed by the, the police. Um, but that's not necessarily due to a racial or an implicit bias against the you know being white. It, it's for other issues, other issues involving the power in the policing system. Um, but yeah, that can definitely. I, I do also have my qualms about that. That was actually um, something that I had quoted um, in I think an interview or uh, a, a speech that uh, Cedric Johnson gave um, in discussing, like, the fact that th- th- there isn't enough discussion of the fact that we have to involve, we have to, yeah, involve the harms that anti-Blackness does to the white population. And that's, like, a really hard thing to frame mm-hmm because of the privileges of being white and, right. and being as far away from blackness that you can be. So, I mean, that would be for a practical, for the sake of practicality, that would be something to discuss, but how do we discuss it without absolving the fact that yes, indeed, like in real time, black bodies are discriminated against for simply being black. And it is both economic and, and sociological. If they were, if the Chaz zone you know, organizers were making like a, you know, like a highly organized strategic, like movement about like people moving in to block off police brutality and stuff. Like, I think that would be like a very impressive, like kind of organized sense. I think the people who I were talking about it were saying it was a much, it was much more of a, like, read the book, white fragility. You need to go like, a, you know, that's your atonement kind of thing, which they were saying how, like, you know, some of the people that they knew, like, came in were like, I'm getting hit with rubber bullets in the face. I'm not going to stay here anymore. Kind of, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing. But yeah, I think I think one of the struggles, of course, is like, 
if you actually do organize, especially in the face of police violence, like, like you do want to have people ready to like put themselves on the line. And it's especially hard and meaningful to like try and get people who are the ones who do have a socially, economically, politically kind of, you know, that, that branded thing that is, you know, privilege is kind of a vague overused word sometimes, but that privilege identity signifier because like certainly you know sometimes you get this kind of like well we just have to get every kind of like poor trump voter to realize they're poor and not vote for trump like that's and it's like no that's it's more complicated than that. <laughs> and it's like it, Most and, and it's like you know like the goal is not strictly like i'm not gonna roll out to the protest and like go like in boise there was you know a counter protest where there were people with actual like Nazi paraphernalia and stuff. And like, like the goal is not to like go to those people and be like, well, really you should be on our side. Like, like, I mean, like maybe there's occasionally like individuals who will be like, but like you have to think on like a certain more strategic and like collective level about like peoples. And I think yeah. it's, um, not always obvious like how to engage with that or like especially thinking of it in in local terms like who are the people in my town and community who you can really talk to about that solidarity and that material interest in a way that right and and to talk about it in a way that is also not because like i don't make a lot of money personally but i go into a fancy school i live in my parents very comfortable house and they provide a lot of like so i de and i'm white and like i have a lot of that like so it's like how how can i talk to people on the grounds of wanting to engage in a radical action but not have it just be like a well shouldn't you know better yeah and i don't think that that kind of language does anything to help people on that end like right-winged radicals yeah. kind of like understand um, and I would also caution um, for Black individuals, like, to start reconsidering whether or not they have the ability to to have discussions with these people. Um, the, oh God, um, you know the 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 Nazi types and the white supremacist types. Um, I myself have a lot of experience <laughs> with those groups, as you can imagine. Again, the white supremacist table. Um, I was actually really cool with a lot of them. Um, and I'm not saying I didn't have my own complexes at that time, but the point is that even with the most radical of, you know, white supremacist or anti-black white people, um, the conversations can happen. I'm not going to say they don't get dangerous, but that is definitely something that everyone can engage in if they have the energy to. Um, and yeah, the, the, the belittling and the, and the antagonism, you know, I think the hardest thing to come to terms with is that there is a reason that these mentalities exist and they're psychological. There are plenty of studies on, you know, why people tend towards either a more left or a right perspective, more liberal or conservative perspective, um, and why people tend towards such <clears throat> racialized extremism and antagonism. Um, you know, again, it was a, 
relatively conservative, you know, I would say mildly racist Trump supporter who fed me growing up. Um, and, you know, although it, it's such a it's such a complex um, to have someone who looks to me like family, um, who also on a lot of fronts of my existence can't validate my experiences with racism or with anti-blackness or, you know, um, it, it's complicated. And I would say for the, if, if white if white people wanted to look at what is privilege um, outside of just virtue signaling and white guilt and tears, I would say look at the fact that in the eyes of conservative slash right wing slash white supremacist people, you are a person, right? That's something that the rest of us have to fight for. We are different degrees of maybe human, uh, I don't know. Um, but you get to be an entire full person. And that makes it so much easier to have a discussion. And if I can do it, you better be doing it. And you better be doing it in a way that makes sense to them. That means not belittling them, not aggressing them, and um, speaking in a language that is understandable for whatever individual's like lingual understanding. Um, because using big, fancy academic words does not make you smarter. It makes you inefficient and, you know, praxisless. So... Um, the, the, the last bit I wanted to add was just like, it's, it's something that requires you to understand, like really understand the why about, you know, and the how we got to these kinds of mentalities and looking at it like that and dissecting it rather than projecting your own guilt onto it. I've had some interaction with someone who used to, I think they were a founding member, maybe used to work with that, um, that old redneck revolt group um, that kind of ended up disbanding. They're not like really active anymore, but um, yeah, like they definitely had a lot of interesting stuff to say about, uh, I think they called it, yeah, like counter recruitment, like the praxis of knowing how to talk with people who are um, on what is like, you know, the political enemy ideology side of things. And like, you know, like they were, you know, in a group where they would go out to like, you know, gun gun shows and just like find ostensibly like very reactionary people. And it's just like, hey, let's just sit down and talk about guns and self-defense and like, hey, maybe like, let's talk a bit about like how hard it is for you to like find a job right now. And like you in like you that kind of rapport. And then you like start yeah. kind of introducing like the like, oh yeah, my friend is, you know, this and we do this thing. And, um, cause like, I mean, definitely I've had, um, you know, again, when I was a custodian, like by no, like there were very, 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 very few people there who I would say were progressive in the standard, like American kind of democratic or even just like socially progressive sense. Um, but most people did get along pretty well, even like our, our manager was a guy who was a very, like, you know, very veteran libertarian, very much a, like, I just say what I want and I don't want you to be offended by it. He's like, I don't, I very like, I don't mean anyone, any personal harm. I'm just trying to be funny, but that's who I am kind of thing. Um, 
but like some of those people yeah like definitely very xenophobic very racist but like given that everyone kind of just worked together um i mean it's not one of those things where like they're afraid of the like big abstract thing but like if they work with you on a personal level they're like no you're the good one because i know you and i work with you like um yeah but like even on that basis i think you know like you 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 have an opening to talk with people on a different level in that kind of material like like we we're custodians we both literally clean up other people's shit that they don't like deal with <laughs> like that that provides like a very specific kind of like hey like we can talk about this um and yeah like i think i i with the like with the nazis and stuff i think i just kind of meant more like you you m- m- you'd want to be like super highly competent at that if you were like actually at a protest and there were counter protesters with guns like yeah you, you want to be safe about it I, I i don't know if i would like think you would I, I wouldn't necessarily plan on rolling up to like ruby ridge and being like we're here to talk with you about solidarity on our terms like yeah. you know like it's too much too you, you 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 want to have you know like being having the capacity to talk with someone on the level they understand also means like having the the context and time and place to connect with them on that. No, it's a slow process for sure. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else that you like really want to bring up or really um, talk about in, in maybe another, like in a 10 minutes or so? Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, thank you for that. I, I think this conversation was uh, very anecdotal compared to the, other two that we've had but you know that also contributes to the general lesson um i did kind of want to talk about um the critique on yellow peril i made i don't think i have enough time to necessarily uh tackle all of my points there so maybe that's just a a whole other thing um but i was recently involved um in the floyd during like the the late May, early June, like, uh, kind of like really hot start to the protests, um, with a pretty, pretty specific, um, controversial critique, um, that's actually started with, um, me and another, um, Afro-Asian femme and, um, picked up due to, um, an artist who popularized, I guess, revitalized the the, the slogan um, "Yellow Peril supports Black Lives," and also um, an NBC Asian America um, article that was written about that. Um, I don't really know how to speak on that currently, but I do kind of want to clarify um, for anyone who might have caught one of that article or um, the critiques going around that no, that is not simply, um, that did not start with just an Asian community that didn't come out of nowhere. Um, That was indeed a black, Asian and Afro, like ablation 
critique for people from people who actually have experience within the Black and Asian and Malaysian communities. Um, I think kind of tying into our discussion on how to engage between communities, um, but like in an opposite direction, so not dealing with white supremacists. Um, for people looking to ally um, or looking to speak for blackness within their own community. So in this case, the um, not at all of a monolith, um, but also self-described monolith of the AAPI, um, Asian American Pacific Islander community. Um, the reasons that I and another black Asian individual took issue with Yellow Peril supporting black lives came out of a, a very long ongoing invalidation of the just the amount of economic power and I guess like uh, initiated acts of self-initiated acts of anti-blackness within the Asian community in America, um, however diverse it is, and also abroad and in all the diasporas. Um, the critique came mostly because Yellow Peril, in, it, it, although a very valid thing, and I know that that started back as far as the mid-1800s, oh, no, 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 the late 1700s, um, with Horace Walpole himself, and continuing on even to, um, what, like Steinbeck, um, through Manchuisms and all of that. In the context of blackness, in the context of blackness, Yellow Peril never did support black lives. Controversial take, and a lot to say at once, I know. But, you know, the history with Aoki and in how Asian Americans, you know, number one, did not experience the, the same depth of racial discrimination, such as like Jim Crow, as um, black people did. And I'm actually translating a, a book made, uh, <laughs> a book by Japanese um, academics on American culture um, right now um, that documented how they were exempted from Jim Crow and other segregation and um, discriminatory laws, policies, and um, sentiments. Um, but, um, and it's not all to negate Asian American struggles or struggles in the general Asian diaspora and on the mainlands, um, but it's to say that Asian Americans need to start taking accountability for how they perpetuate racism and classism in black communities. It's not to say that there aren't reasons for that. There are reasons for all of this, but it's to say that Asian people as a general body have racial superiority over black people and do utilize that and it is harmful. Just as Asian communities would talk about injustices with, you know, how, uh, <clears throat> you know, with um, Peter Leong and having been charged as a scapegoat um, by, you know, white bodies and by um, white jurors and a white judge um, 
you you can't say that without also looking at how you know that was done at the expense of black people. Um, I'm currently writing an article about this. I say currently, I've kind of taken a break, but I'm currently writing a more detailed, more in-depth article about this. The one for NBC um, Asian America did not at all address the issues that the original complainants of, you know, the Yellow Peril for Black Lives brought up. Our issues did not have to do um, with... You know, gosh, I can hardly remember the article. I'm sorry. It, it didn't have to do with the history or the fact that Yellow Peril to this day does exist um, differently, but still does exist. Um, and it, it had to do with the fact that when you center, when you compare Asian and Black struggles, you are invalidating, you're putting that first over the fact that Asian people as a body have power over Black bodies. And that is something that we really have to be critical of. Race issues, race theory, out of the context of history, how we have been socialized, and the economic implications of that socialization doesn't have any practical use and can be counterproductive in a sort of neoliberal or even a liberal kind of virtue signaling and um, a, a way to diminish the responsibility that that comes with being able to have power over another group of people. Um, again, I, I don't know if this does it justice, but um, I, I intend on speaking more about this um, at a later point in, um, in which my health allows for this kind of stress because I never intended for my critique to blow up in the way that it did. Um, and it never seemed like a very big issue to me but the way that the Asian American community has responded to it has made me believe that maybe the main point isn't really getting through. That you can both be an oppressed demographic, again, you know, white trash, redneck hillbillies are not necessarily the, the top of the top, you know. Um, they too are not thriving and living their best lives. <laughs> um, so you can both be oppressed and be an oppressor. And we need to start looking at the Asian American and the Asian general global community and the Black American, Black global community as maybe a bit of a microcosm of that issue as well. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what I had to say about that. Okay. Well, thank you again for doing this. I know it's kind of weird to just like out of the blue be like, talk about global events. Give me your <laughs> perspective. But as I said before, you've got just a lot of personal experience that is tied to a lot of, um, I think, unique perspectives or you uh, have seen a lot of the diversity of certain experiences that are often homogenized or taken as one big block. Um, so it's been really great having you here to talk about this. Well, thank you. Um, and yeah, um, besides my own experiences, I do kind of want to um, kind of take a nod to the collective, um, as Angela Davis had put it, um, the collective experience and the collective knowledge um, that I'm not just speaking from, you know, the, the, the things that I've seen and experienced myself, um, but also all the lessons I've learned from other experiences and other you know, intellectual thought um, 
around all of it. So yeah, shout out to the collective. <laughs> yeah. That's all for this special bonus episode. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I know I certainly did. And I'd like to give another shout out and thanks to Misha for agreeing to come on here on short notice and to talk about a wide variety of just personal and political topics. It's greatly appreciated. As I mentioned at the beginning, we will have another bonus episode out shortly to talk more about Lombardo Bobbio from our last book club discussion. And we have our book club discussion about Chantal Mouffe's ret- Return of the Political coming up as well. So, Radical Thoughts is a personal project, just not associated with Verso Books in any way. We hope you'll join us next time.